hits you for the first time, that the little deer crossing sign is, is there for the drivers in the car to avoid deer rather than the deer to know where to cross the road. These are real things, right? And you're like, what? It's so obvious. Why didn't anybody tell me this before? So now we're taking that, right, and we're applying it to these stories in the Bible, Stories that maybe you thought you had a solid understanding of for a long, long time, possibly even decades. And as you come into these stories, as we all do together, what we're going to see today is that, is that maybe there's something else to it. Maybe something, there's something more to the story than all of that. And, and as we dig into these things, now I, it may be a little, a little hard to sum it, because some of these things are going to be maybe cherished Bible passages that you've had for a long, long time. And you're going to say, do you know how many graduation cards I wrote that verse in, right? And together, we're going to come to terms with this, and I want to make a couple of promises to you throughout this series, if I could. The first promise that I make is that the actual meaning of a Bible passage, in context of the, that book and the rest of the Bible, the actual meaning that God has for you is infinitely greater than whatever you've twisted, whatever we've misunderstood it to be, right? Because it comes from God, we know that it's so much better, it's so much deeper than whatever we mistook it for in the first place. And the other promise that I want to make, if I could, is that I'm going to go first, okay? Because I don't want to be like the guy on the stage with all the answers. So I'm going to come and say, I preached a, uh, a Bible story, a parable, a story, um, uh, probably five years ago. And, uh, and I, I just, I kind of missed it. And this is my chance at a do-over, I guess you could say. So thank you, Memorial Day weekend, for coming out for Dirk's do-over message. No, 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 it's, it's more than that. Be- because of the first promise, because of the first point, that, that whatever God has for us, I think is so much infinitely greater and better and deeper than anything I mistook it before in the past. So five years ago, Encounter Church was meeting in a little, little cafetorium that was mostly cafeteria, uh, but it had a stage, so we went for it. And like both of you were there, it was awesome. And I just had a newborn kid at home, and I wasn't sleeping at night, and I just totally like twisted what a passage was about. And today we get to unwrap that and see what God's not-so-hidden truth in there is actually all about. So here's the setup. Uh, it's Matthew chapter 13. By the way, if you want to follow along, it's three verses long, not long at all. So if you blink, you're going to miss it. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, there's Bibles uh, under the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen as well. By the way, if you... Uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or if you just like ours better, go ahead and take it. We give those away every week, and we love that. But Matthew chapter 13 takes place, and it's relatively early on in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he's kind of just gathering momentum, and there's people, and there's crowds all around, which is very, very exciting. And, and Jesus is up here, and he's, he's talking to the people. He's teaching the people about the truths of, of following after God about the kingdom like underneath the kingdom. And and the text says that as he's teaching his disciples this thing, as the crowds are gathering and lots of people around, he's doing that exclusively, at least in this setting, he's doing that exclusively in parables. Parables are these these like short, often made up stories that are made up in a way just to like drill a point home. So like growing up, we had a parable in my house. We had a story. Every time my folks would hear like a door slam, we would hear the parable of one of my dad's friends who lost a finger in like the door slamming. Okay, it was, that was, okay. He didn't actually lose a finger because it's a parable, right? Like we, we get, they're made up stories. We came to terms with it in high school and realized none of dad's friends are missing fingers. I don't think this actually happened. But by that time, we almost were growing out of the door slamming phase. 
So we kind of figured it out. Well, Jesus is telling these stories that are kind of cryptic sometimes, and we don't totally know exactly what they mean all the time, but, but the disciples are here, and you just kind of get the impression that they're just watching what's taking place up on the mountainside there where Jesus is teaching, and they're like nodding along, assuming that Jesus is going to unpack this for them later back at the house or something. And he does. Just before our passage, he dismisses the crowds. They all go home. And Jesus calls his, uh, his people, his boys, his disciples, the 12 of them, he calls them in together, and they're hanging out in somebody's living room. Now, it's, it's very small structure, so it's like crowded in, and Jesus is there with the 12, 24 eyeballs, like staring back at him, and Jesus starts to tell them what some of the parables, some of these short stories, really mean. And then he gives them a parable, a story that's like for their eyes only. It's just for them. He's sitting there and he goes, no, 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 there's one more story I want to tell you about a treasure. And it's only the 12 now that are listening in. It's only for them and it's only for us, the followers of Jesus now, or, or people curious, uh, like listening into what Jesus has for them. Let's read the passage, and then I'm going to make a few comments about it. But it's so short that I just want to read the whole thing, uh, the whole thing through. It starts off, Matthew 13, verse 44, where Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And now Jesus is going to tell the same thing one more time. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. So the comments that I want to make on it this morning are, are pretty simple. The comments are that it's a, something about a path, it's something about the cost, and then we're going to see this twist at the end because the name of the series is Twisted, after all, so stay tuned. Uh, so the first thing is about the path. Now, what's so interesting, I think, about this parable is that when Jesus tells it, he tells the same parable essentially two times, and it's so short. Maybe they just didn't catch it for the first time, or, or maybe not. But Matthew here, the author, he records both of them, I think because of the subtle nuances involved here that, that speak uh, depths. Uh, speak volumes about the path to the treasure. Now, the, the key difference, distinction between these two is that, is that in the first one about the treasure, it, you just get this impression that somebody's like bopping along in a field and then it's like, oh, he like trips over something and he sees, uh, he sees like a box, like a crate and he opens it up and there's a treasure. And then he goes, of course, and he, he figures out how to buy the whole field in order to get that treasure. I, I just, I want to I guess make a small kind of like sentence over the first story, the first parable that says, it wasn't so much that the man found the treasure as it was like the treasure found him, right? He wasn't going out, he wasn't looking, he wasn't treasure hunting, he wasn't looking for it, he just sort of like stumbled upon it and the treasure like found him. Okay, that's the first one about like the buried treasure. The other story parable um, is that there's a merchant of gemstones, of pearls. I mean, this guy knows what he's looking for, right? He's got an eye for it. It's like dialed in, it's tuned in. He's got it, okay? And then he spends his whole life, you get the impression, his career looking for this kind of, for this pearl, 
Jesus says that, kind of an understatement, a pearl of great value. Yeah, great value. It's worth selling everything he has for. So on the other one, we have like somebody walking through with a trained eye who knows exactly what he's looking for. He found the treasure. He was looking for it all along. Now, the reason why I think that's worth repeating is because Jesus isn't just speaking to the whole crowds, right? He dismissed them. He's talking to his boys. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to these 12 guys. And there's two people in the room right now that I think he's really dialed in on. Because as he lists out who these disciples are, there's two disciples that are listed in the Gospels, just two of them, who come not only with a name, but also a job description, right? Some of them are like Simon Peter or James, the brother of John. No, no, there's two guys, two disciples that come with with jobs attached. The first one is Matthew, the tax collector. Tax collectors are just hated. I mean, tax collectors are loathed across the whole nation. Tax collectors... It's not much of an icebreaker at a party, right? When you show up and you tell them that you work for the IRS, like that quiet conversation. Tax collectors then were even like dismorted, like so much because it's like government sponsored, um, Roman government sponsored extortion. Where, Where Matthew, the process was that he put on a bid to like his higher ups to say, how much money does he think he can collect from everybody around? And so he puts a bid out on it, and it's like the highest bid wins. And the government, the Romans say, like, okay, go ahead and get that money. How is Matthew going to get paid? Everything that he collects over and above the bid that he gave is like his to pocket. So you can understand what this does to the, to the friendships around, to the relationships around. People wouldn't touch Matthew with a 10-foot pole. He wasn't just an extortionist. He was a traitor to the people, a traitor to, to the Jewish people, to the Romans. He's on their team now. Nobody looks at a guy like Matthew and says, hey, there at his booth is a great spiritual leader. <laughs> Nobody looks at this guy in the booth and says, that guy's got it. Until Jesus comes along, right? And we know this because we're reading this from Matthew's own gospel account. And Jesus comes along and he says, Matthew, I see something in you that nobody else in history has ever seen in another tax collector. He goes, Matthew, I think that you've got what it takes. Matthew, I want you to come and follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. I want you to be one of my people. Matthew, I think I see in you a potential to be a great spiritual leader. And Matthew leaves the booth and follows Jesus. It wasn't so much that, the treasure, that he was looking for and found a treasure, is that the treasure found him. But Matthew's not the only guy in the room when Jesus tells the story. Matthew's on one side. On the other side, because these two are not sitting next to each other, is Simon the Zealot. Now, in a lot of Bibles, when you see the zealot, it's like the Z is capitalized, right? It's not, a, uh, it's not so much a, a generic description of a passion, although it is that, but a zealot means that this is somebody who is part of an organization, is part of a movement that is trying to overthrow the Romans, the exact polar opposite as Matthew is on the opposite side of the room that day. Simon the Zealot is the guy who's trying to take like, his zeal and his passion for God's rules, for God's law, and try to use those to like, expel out the Romans from Israel and especially Jerusalem. 
is a fun fact is that, is that after the time of Jesus, probably uh, two, three decades or so after Jesus, it was the zealots that actually succeeded in doing that in the Jewish revolt. And the zealots got this movement going where they actually expelled the Romans from Jerusalem. Now, it's like a city going to war with a global empire. It didn't last long, but that's not the point. The point was, like, like Simon is on the ground level of this movement called, called the zealots that just loathes Rome so much. And he has so much passion, and he has so much zeal for God's ways and God's laws that he's willing to do anything to, to promote them anywhere. It, and Jesus sits down to these two guys, and he goes, oh, no, Matthew, I got a story for you, and Simon, I've got a story for you. You spent your whole life looking, Simon, You spent your whole life looking for God's ways, for trying to follow after God's ways. You spent your whole life thinking that you had everything figured out. And now Jesus says, Simon, like the merchant, I want you to sell it all and I want you to come and I want you to follow me. Now, the reason why I think this is a message that Encounter Church needs to hear, that we need to hear so badly, is this is what kind of church we are. We are the church for the Matthews, and we are the church for the Simons. We are the church that thought to themselves, I never imagined I would be a spiritual leader. I never imagined that somebody would ask me to lead a small group. I never imagined that somebody would ask me to teach little kids about Jesus. I never imagined that God could use me. It wasn't so much like I was looking for Jesus. It's just like Jesus found me. And we also have Simons in the room today or watching online, Simons that are going, going like, I looked and searched for God my whole life. I maybe grew up in church or in a church or in a religion. I was, I was pursuing this my whole life. I grew up on the stories. I memorized verses. And then along came Jesus, and I knew this is the one worth selling everything for. Like the first comment that I simply I, I want to make about this passage is a simple one. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what path God took you on. The treasure is the same. It doesn't matter if you grew up in this thing your whole life and you've poured your heart and soul and mind into this thing. It doesn't matter if yesterday you decided, I'm going to try church for the first time. It doesn't matter what path God took you on to bring you here. The treasure is the same. And so is the cost. That's what, the sa- that's what was in the parables that was the same. The paths may be different, the cost is the same. Both of them, it, it costs everything. You just imagine for a minute Simon being a zealot. And everything that that just entailed and everything that was wrapped up into that, about somebody who just, who, who collectively is part of a group that, that, that cannot stand the Romans so much that they're actually plotting a violent rebellion from them. And you just imagine what it would take for, for Simon, somebody like him, to follow Jesus, who heals a centurion's, a Roman soldier's daughter, 
right? Who, who says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know totally the extent of what they are doing. You just imagine for Simon what it would cost to follow along, what it would cost to leave that group. You just imagine for Matthew, the tax collector with his tax collecting ways, the only friends he has under heaven is the other tax collectors. Nobody else would be caught dead with them. He's giving up his friends. He's giving up extravagant wealth. He's giving up this, this notoriety that he has built up. And for what? Like anybody else is ever going to accept him. He's walking away from a tax collecting booth just like Simon is walking away from his zealot club gatherings. The cost is the same no matter which path God took you on. And the cost is everything. Now, I, I hope that, like, like, sinks in a bit. Like, think about that for, for a minute. Like, like, how much? And there's no room to make. It's everything that he has. You know, we hear these stories, like, like 2 Corinthians, right? About, you know, in Christ, you're a new creation, and the old is gone because, like, the new has come, Right? Have we ever thought just a minute about what your tax booth looks like or what your zealot group looks like? What's that life that you left behind or are currently like in the process somewhere in the line of leaving that life behind in order to follow Jesus? Because I'll tell you, when I read the passage, what gets really, really tough, what gets really, really hard for me is when I look at that and I say, what does it cost to follow Jesus lately? Or maybe better poses, has it really cost much to follow Jesus lately? And then this real like come to terms grappling with the idea to say, maybe, maybe if it hasn't cost me all that much to follow Jesus lately, maybe it's because it's not exactly Jesus that I'm following. We have this way of going through the, the life of Jesus, following the life of Jesus, like, like it's a chore, like it's something we do. Like it's a routine that we have, and it is a routine. It's a good habit. Like flossing and exercising, it's a good habit. And the routines about scripture reading and church attendance, it's a good routine. Don't get me wrong. But we have this way of following Jesus, like it's just another box to check. It's just another list on the to-do item. It's another chore. I want, I want to call us back to the parable, right? Yeah, I call us back to the parable because there's, there's, there's something else there. It's an, an emotive word. There's something there in verse 44. If we could zoom in on that, where the person goes and he says, listen, after he finds the treasure, after he finds the treasure in verse 44, he goes, in his joy, he sells everything that he has. Like, like for this guy that stumbled upon a treasure, it's just sheer exuberance. I am just elated. I am so excited to the, the, the possibility of giving over everything to gain something so much greater than all of that. It's in his joy that he just can't help but celebrate everything. I just imagine, you know, in today's kind of language, I just imagine of a guy walking through a, a field, just on a walk, and he's bopping along, listening to tunes in his head or something, and he comes along, and he, he bumps into that crate, right? And he's like, that's weird. He opens up, it's this like, you know, wood-looking crate. He opens it up and he sees it's just stacked with cash. And it's old. Depression era, maybe, you know, world post-war or something. Nobody's coming back for this pile. And he's like flipping through this. And he's like, 
I, there's no way that I can just take this money back home and say, I don't know, I found it. Like, there's millions in here, maybe more. Somebody's going to say something like, where'd you get the crate of cash, John? Right? Like, he, he knows he can't do that, right? So there's this guy, he's walking through, and he goes, I can't believe I just found the treasure. And he happens to notice that the lot is for sale. You know, it had never been developed, you know, and he goes, how much is it? Uh, about a half million. I mean, it's a, it's a big lot, uh, a decent location, uh, $500,000. And he's like adding it up going, I don't know. And he's walking along, right? And he's, he's adding up the numbers in his head. And he goes, if I take a second mortgage on my house, you know, and as I, um, as I cash out maybe my retirement plan, IRA, 401k, pension, like whatever he's got, you know, maybe I can get something there, right? And his pace is like picking up as he's like trying to crunch the numbers and do the math about how we can buy this field and the, and the treasure in it. And then he can like, right, hey, I just kind of came across this thing. Okay, if I sell that you know, house and the retirement, um, if I max out all of my credit cards, I really don't want to do this. But I ask, if I ask my in-laws for a loan, I mean, that's going to be bad. But, but after all, treasure, right? And as he's like walking along, okay, if I sell my car, if I sell my wife's car, maybe if I just sell my wife, no, no, I sell both of our cars, right? And his pace starts to pick up as he's walking along because he's doing the math and he, and he starts to realize like, 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 wait a second, I can swing this thing. I can come up with the money. I can buy this thing. Like, like this, this field, this lot, along with the treasure underneath, this, this thing could be mine. And he's adding it up, and now he's like bouncing, right? He, he's like he's walking on air as he goes through. And by the time he gets home, he is just so excited, and he is just so elated, because, because when you found a treasure worth everything, you're willing to sell anything. Right? And there's a, there's a point here in the story about, about everything to you, right? Anything, you know, the, the house, the car, whatever, your old way of life, your old habits, your old reluctance to apologize, your, your old everything. It, it's worth It's worth it for this greater thing because in comparison, our old way of life is just, it's so small. And this way of following Jesus is just so great and so much better. See, I thought that I had the hack figured out on the story because I I thought this, the line of reasoning, the the thought is that if you're going to hedge on something, like if you're going to bet on something, you might as well hedge, you might as well bet on Jesus because everything else may end up leaving you. Everything else can be taken away from you, but Jesus never will. And after all, it's like a guy selling his house for a winning lottery ticket. Like, it's no problem. I'll buy a new house, right? It's not that small of a sacrifice on the other side of it. If you bet on Jesus, if you hedge on Jesus, listen, it's guaranteed you'll win every time. I thought I had it figured out. Right? Like, if, if you build your life around family, they may disappoint you. If you build your life around status, you may lose it. If you build your life around money and things, it may never actually quite be enough and leave you wanting more. But if you build your life around Jesus, that is something that can never, ever, ever, ever be taken away from you. It's the safest bet than you could ever possibly make. Hedge on that. You'll win every time. Roy won every time. (laughs) Roy Wettstein, he won. 
So he's a, he's a true story. It comes from 1987 LA Times article. Roy, uh, Roy goes as a rock collector, an amateur rock collector to the show in Texas. And his kids at the time, each give him two kids, each give him five bucks and say, Dad, when you go to the show, buy us a cool rock. All right, kids. And he shows up and he's, he's looking at one of the vendor stations at this Tupperware bin, right, this bucket. As he looks in here, um, he sees it's all, it's these agates are kind of pretty looking, super common. So the sign uh, written above says like, you know, each rock, 15 bucks. Okay, and he picks one up and he goes to the vendor, like, you, want, you want 15 bucks for this thing? And the vendor looks at it and he goes, you know, it, it doesn't have as many agates on it. It's not quite as pretty as the other one. So how about, how about just 10 bucks for this one? He hands over the two five spots that his kids gave him, makes sure to get a receipt from it, puts it in his pocket, and he cannot contain his joy as he walks outside into the parking lot because he didn't buy an agate that day. He knew he wasn't buying that. As he walks out into the parking lot and he looks down, he sees the largest star sapphire that has ever been found, weighing in at 1,905 carats. It is 700 carats larger than the previously record-setting star sapphire. He is even an amateur rock collector, knows it's incredible value. It's later appraised at $2.5 million uncut, over $10 million cut. And you know he's going to cut it. He can... <laughs> not contain his excitement. He knows what he found, and he knows it's incomparable worth. No, 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 back up, back up, because you just imagine Roy, like, like in the bucket that day, the life-changing event, and he's got two five spots, and the guy says, I'll give it to you to 10. Could you imagine if he pockets one of the fives and say, how about we split it? Because I want to make sure to walk out of here with at least five bucks. Could you imagine somebody like that? You know, one thing that I want you to leave here today, I want you to leave here with this enthusiasm and with this excitement, friends, to live out your faith like Roy, finding a treasure, to live out like your faith like it is a treasure to be cherished, like it is something that can never, ever, ever, ever be taken away from you. Because it's true that if you bet on Jesus, if you stake it all on Jesus, you'll win every single time. Here's the twist. Throughout this series, starting this week, we're going to send out these twisted tips about how to read the Bible. And one of the first tips that we love around here is that whenever you read this story, we always read Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus is the center of our whole lives. And so one of the dangers that we fall into sometimes, that I fall into the first time I had to go around at this, is assuming that I am the I am the one seated in the, in the protagonist spot. I am the hero of the story. I am the treasure hunter. I am the expert merchant looking for a fine pearl. I am everything, and I can, I can go and I can heroically sell anything to buy everything. I can do all of this. And Jesus calls us back, and he goes, you are not the hero of this story. You are not the protagonist of this story. You are not the expert merchant. You did not courageously sell everything to buy this treasure. 
Jesus calls us back as the center of this story and goes, no, 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 you aren't looking for a treasure. You are the treasure of God and you are worth everything to hand over so that you can once again be mine. You are the most precious thing to me. You are the most coveted creation that I have made. You bear my image. And when I was up and I was on that cross handing over everything that I have so that you could be mine once again, I imagine how I knit you together in your mother's womb. I imagine how I'm continually shaping you on the wheel like a potter shapes clay. I see your past, I see your present, and I certainly see the future that I am shaping you into so that we can spend eternity together. Live out your faith like you just found a treasure, friends, because to God, you are one. You are his workmanship. You are his craft. You are worth Jesus handing over everything. I want you to stand up. Let's pray together. Gracious God, you see something in us that we don't see. You see something beyond our gifts. You see something beyond our, our skills, our proficiencies the positives of our personalities and those idiosyncrasies that we wish we could just get rid of. And God, you look into the depths of our soul. And like us, God, you don't always like what you see in there, but we, you like what you could turn it into. And God, you like it enough to choose to spend eternity with us. Gracious God, Together this week, we, we reflect on what that sacrifice meant and keeping us in your mind as, as us, a, a creation of yours, worthy of dying, not because of, of how good we are, but of how, how loving and how good you are and seeing us. God, continue to mold us and shape us and perfect us. Continue to, to creating us into somebody who, who loves and lives more and more like you, Jesus Christ. God, so that someday you'll turn us into someone worthy of being called a child of God. Amen.